Hello and welcome to Future Thinking. I'm your host, Chris Slowly, the editor of CityWire Selector. In the second series of the podcast, we've talked about culture, working life, esports, and alternatives, among many other things. But why not think a little bit bigger? At the time of recording, ARK Invest is catching headlines for its space-focused ETF. But what's the real story for the future beyond our earthly bonds? In this episode, I speak to graphic designer turned space investor Simon Drake, who is the founder of Space Ventures Investors. From intergalactic commodities to the race for resources, Simon will take us through what treasures and challenges lie in this uncharted territory. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking. I'm Chris Slowly, the editor of CityWire Selector. I've got an exciting guest today. We're going beyond the realms of what we normally cover. We're going into space. I'm joined by Simon Drake, the CEO of Space Ventures Investors. Thank you for joining us, Simon. Chris, thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time. So, I mean, you space, it's a huge topic. We're going to try and cover as much as we can in a short amount of time. But to kick off, could you just give us a bit of background about yourself and, and what space ventures investors are and what do you do? Okay, a quick uh, background about myself. I uh, am from uh, Australia. I uh, studied graphic design. I worked in finance, also worked in marketing. And at a certain point, I think about 10 years ago in my, um, my career, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to find something different. And I looked at the, um, the points in history and what was happening in our history, and I decided on space. Um, so my business partner and I, we formed Space Ventures Investors. And our goal was to how to make investing in space attractive for everybody and to allocate capital to build out a vision and we call it the space strategic space value chain so that we could make real operations and missions possible fantastic well it sounds like it's a, an exciting area to be in and i think when we spoke in a pre-call for this the limitations of the asset management world are we know spacex we know that link to tesla there's a few asset management companies that are launching a, a space etf so how how much opportunity is there? How much potential is there? And if that isn't the biggest question to start with, what what are people actually investing in when they're investing in space and space innovation? They uh, the funny thing is you already are you already are investing in space innovation every time you use your smartphone and um, use the the navigation option because your phone is picking up the um, satellites that are used to send, you know, GPS signals or if in Europe, you're using the Galileo system. So you're already using innovation without even knowing it. Um, and there's a, quite a few large companies, you know, like satellite companies who already provide this innovation in terms of an, enabling, you know, satellite calls. Um, the next phase of the innovation is, the, we, we all hear, hear about SpaceX, but that, that is the next phase where the cost to space is lowered because SpaceX has worked out to use reusable rockets. Mm. And that as a, is a bridge that is a long overdue and, and, and warmly welcomed because it enables hardware cheap access to space, which means entrepreneurs can build out a system at a, at a, at a lower cost. Not a fraction of the cost, but... At a lower cost. That's the plan. It seems like space does draw a certain type of innovative thinking. You used a great line when we spoke before that if anything you put in space, space will try to kill it. So it seems like space is the ultimate testing ground. Is, is that how you found it? Do you think that it is drawn, innovative people are drawn to working in this area? Yes. Well, the, the space industries I found was 
pretty much populated by the um, the engineers who had to come up with the ways of making you know our devices survive in in, in a harsh environment. And the harsh environment, you know, it, it ranges from radiation to vacuum to temperature swings. Um, so this is a calling card for the the thinkers that that want to solve, you know, gigantic problems. Then the next wave of people interested in space is, is, is people like myself who say, okay, well, where are we, where are we going to go on, on Earth in, in this time of our life? What can we do? Um, what will make a difference? And, you know, for some of us, the, making a difference is, well, how can we, you know, move our species into space? How can we do it in a constructive, productive and profitable manner? And what can we build in space that uh, won't be destroyed by all the, all the harsh elements? That's like a, an important thing to bring into those quantum, uh, calculations. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is funny because you... You know, you hear about these concepts of, you know, building a, a hotel in space or, or things like that. Then you think, well, hang on, why hasn't it been done? And, and more importantly, from a business point of view, um, what can we achieve in our lifetime, uh, given the technology we have or are in the process of, de of developing, that will be a beacon for change and signify some progress? So do, you have do you to weigh think we're up. more realistic about those sorts of things? Because I remember as a kid even seeing like the, the bubble hotels on the moon and things like that. Do you think that thought process has moved on or is that still like the long-term ambition to effectively live as we live here, but live in space? Yeah, I, I too remember the, the grand promises um, from the, not just you know, um, the media outlets, but the industry side and but yet when you come back to the practical side and the money available to do certain, you know, grand infrastructure endeavors in space, there's the question of, you know, what is required? What do the people want? So you could say the Cold War was our space policies for the, you know, large nations was kind of governed by a, a defense or, or an offensive need. And so that was the you know, modus operandi. Uh, and then, ex, you know, the Cold War dies down um, and the spending, the spending of space agencies is to do what what they can to try and push the barrier. And I, I feel that the the best with, with space, the best is yet to come because the moment you turn the people from supporting space via their taxes or, or how often they download an app that, you know, uses satellite data and therefore the, the providers of that satellite data can make money. The moment people start turning and saying, you know, I actually want to see a proper, you know, space resources operation and I'm willing to, you know, invest in it or be part of it. I think that changes things significantly. With that then, so let's drill down into how you actually go about it because as I understand it, there's, there's multiple ways you can access space as a story and as an investable story. You mentioned there about satellite data being one of them, but there's rockets, there's manufacturing in space. There's also, I think you used the term space resources when we spoke last time. Can you explain what you mean by that? Is that finding material in space and making use of it? Yeah, it's it's the, uh, I think it's the, the beacon of space that you sh well, if if you go back five hundred years, you know European country, uh, countries, empires have, knew that there was always a business in resources and other lands. So with space, the situation is a bit more difficult because it, you just can't um, 
like go to the moon and, and someone's there to trade with you. Um, but you can go to the moon and try and extract, say, let's assume, rare earth metals uh, from the surface of the moon rather than having to dig them up from a jungle on earth. Mm. So there's, there's elements of like that. Now, the next part of space resources is it might not make any economic sense to find something, say, on the moon and bring it back to Earth because the cost might be exorbitant. But if there's a plan to build, say, a, a base on the moon for science, um, then you could say, well, rather than blast the materials for this base off from Earth, why not uh, extract the metal from the lunar regolith and 3D print it into the structure that you want? So that is is where space resources is at the moment. Um, it's it's not in the in the way out category of finding uh, metallic asteroids in the Kuiper Belt and and dragging it back to Earth and and suddenly everyone's um, got there's enough gold for everybody to <laughs> to, to fill the. To um, that was literally my next question. Was about these these theories that there are sort of these rich like almost. Um, more gold than the entire planet flying around in single asteroids that if they could be somehow harnessed, that would make somebody very, very rich. But that that's not a realistic viewpoint, is that right? Yeah, no, it's 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 way off. Like it's it could be two, three hundred years, you know, even then I'm just guessing because we're talking about a massive distance. Uh we're talking about a lot of energy to get get to this particular asteroid. And I think only 5% of asteroids are like M-type meteorites, which are nickel. So you've got to look at the nickel percentage and, and how much of that is, um, you know, a platinum group metal or, or a rare earth metal. Sure. Um, so there's the energy to get there. Well, first of all, there's the energy to map the asteroid belts. There's the energy to get there and stay there. Um, and then there's the energy to extract exactly what you want from everything that you don't need. And then there's the energy required to build that into something that has a, a value and, and take that to market. So we're, we're a long way off from that. But my, my role is to say, well, you know, as a, a business operator, what, what can we do? What can we do in our lifetime? And, you know, how can we build a business? And for me, it, it is all about looking at our nearest planet and saying, all right, what is possible? Look at the data. Um, what metals are there or um, materials or um, sources of propulsion, for example, extracting water from a, a frozen crater on the southern pole, on the south pole of the moon. Wow. And, and how far progressed are you with those things? I mean, how much, how much of this is still theoretical? It is uh, very theoretical, yet... We're at this point where space agencies and commercial companies, particularly the Americans, are reading the, the hard, they're preparing the right hardware to go to particular locations on the surface of the moon to ground test particular locations. And this, once this is underway and we start removing ourselves from a pure data point of view, for example, there's a lot, most, you know, countries have sent orbiters to to the moon to map its surface and, and look for resources. Um, and they're not there just to make pretty pictures of the moon. That they do have you know quite sophisticated technology which detects all site all sorts of um, materials, metals, etc. What sort so, of stuff have they found so far, Simon? Where are they in terms of that resource gathering? Has there been anything of major use? 
they found obviously traces of, you know, it might be titanium or thorium or uh, hydrogen. Um, the hydrogen would be trapped in a, in a permanently darkened crater. And, and I'll just go on that one because it's, it's an easy one to un- understand. So if you locate a crater um, that's got enough hydrogen trapped or enough water trapped, and then you have to work out, okay, well, we need to develop the technology to extract that. So it would, it would be some case of drilling into a, a darkened, freezing crater and extracting hydrogen oxygen out of the frozen molecules which are embedded in um, the regolith. So it's, it's not like you're dealing with frozen ice. You, you, you're dealing with a very dirty and hopefully wet uh, moon dust. Um, and from there, you you extract oxygen, ox, hydrogen, oxygen. Oxygen gives life. Hydrogen can be used for, for propulsion. And that's the game at the moment is for space agencies and, and commercial companies to try and work out how it is possible because the reason why they want to do it is because it's easier to extract propulsion from the moon and then use it than, than to have to haul it up from Earth because yeah. Earth, is, Earth is a massive gravity well and that's that, that's our problem <laughs> i don't think i've ever heard earth described as that but i think if it's anything it is a massive gravity well especially in comparison to the moon and yeah one one thing that really struck me with this and one thing because you mentioned about many countries going up there is the ownership aspect of things because it, it is as i understand it there is no ownership it's it's completely open but does that present challenges or is that just pure opportunity to to me it it strangely presents opportunity because the, the United Nations out of um, space treaty specific, specifically states you can't own anything in space. And this was written, you know, in at the heat of the Cold War. Um, and, you know, it makes perfect sense. But the US has passed their, I think, space mining laws. So has Luxembourg which pretty much say we will support a, a national company of their own nation, of course, um, in their ability to extract a resource. They will recognize that resource as belonging to an entity. So once you have that set in law, it enables space resources companies to say, okay, well, if we do extract, you know, a hundred tons of, um, you know, let's just call it platinum from a from a crater on the moon, then they can, you know, have a commercial right to it. It's it's no longer trying to say, oh, we own this crater. If they extract the resource from it, it's different. You know, that, that's why these recent space mining laws are, are groundbreaking and they and they do solve a problem that you can't own, you know, anything in space except what you you bring up yourself. That's fascinating. And when you say recent, sorry, I should have done this research. How recent are they? Uh in the last couple of years, it's, it's not. Um, I'm, I don't know, know the exact date myself. I have to look it up. But uh, yeah, it was in the last couple of years where you saw this movement of, particularly the US and Luxembourg, understanding that in order to stimulate growth in the space sector, um, there needed to be a significant regulatory change, which made it easier to for a business to attract investors. I see. Ooh. We jumped about a bit, and I, I meant to ask you about rockets and satellites as well. And I know one of the things that the issue is, is as we move to more technologically advanced on Earth, the number of satellites in orbit will also increase, which I understand also causes a problem with 
satellite waste or, or, or defunct satellites up there. Is that right? Or, or am I, again, I'm showing my limits of my knowledge here. No, that's okay. Um, yeah, there, there are plans for more satellites, more satellite swarms, um, plans for satellite swarms and low Earth orbit to deliver, you know, internet around the world. Um, and there's already existing, I think about 2,000 existing satellites of various shapes and sizes. Some are in a geosynchronous orbit. So there, there, there is a growing problem of space debris because once you have a collision and, and um, you know, high, these things are traveling, I think, you know, 20,000 kilometers an hour. So you can imagine two of them having a, a collision will create a massive spray of debris, which, you know, you have a chain reaction and it all goes everywhere. Yeah. So space debris is the, the next mini industry in space because one way or the other, something will have to be cleaned up and a lot of countries and companies are, are working very hard at you know mitigation or space situational awareness to um first of all understand exactly what's out there and, and the us air force supplies a lot of this information for free um and then try and model you know potential catastrophic collisions um in order to avoid them and uh, try and you know manage the system so that there is room for more satellites, you know, whether it's CubeSats or or Earth observation satellites. I see. So there's there's still room to grow. There's still going to be more development. It seems like it is is an area ripe for for expansion. It it is it is it it is right for expansion. Also the the miniaturization of technology, the lower cost to send your small sat into space means that more people want to do it and they want to conduct they want to gather more data this is in the in the world you know earth observation now it might be communication to do with the internet of things or it might be you know technology used for picking up um radio signals to detect illegal fishing or th things like that so there's always there's always room to grow and it's just a case of managing and, I and i'm pretty sure that the the existing bodies in place are, are doing a good job and will continue to to do a good job of doing it but space debris is always like that that bogeyman lurking in the corner um when <laughs> when will it come out you know? well i mean in, in asset management we have a huge focus on esg and the, the the environmental footprint i mean it's here on earth but it will be i suppose expanding to the near earth orbit as well so i think these are things that need to be considered in one way or another um one thing that I always worry intermittently finish on, I sometimes forget to do it, is it's called Future Thinking, the series. So we do then also try to throw ahead. So if we were to have this conversation in 10 years' time, Simon, what, if any meaningful or significant developments, do you think there would be in your sector? Uh, 10 years for me means, from, from what I know with the businesses and partners that we're working with, is we want to be able to have orbiting tankers that can hold propulsion that can be forward or ordered to you to use to refuel satellites and spacecraft. That's, that's one of our goals from a commercial point of view. Another goal is that within 10 years time, there are locations on the lunar surface where there's um, science and commercial efforts to extract commodities out of the lunar regolith uh, for sale, for export. Or for use on the moon, it's called in situ resource utilization. That that are they these are achievable goals 
in our lifetime, well, sorry, in the next 10 years. It just takes a lot of um, you know, capital uh, and management of it and um, support of the general society as well. You know, the society need, needs to get on board with these things because I think the it's, it's imperative for society to get on board because it's such a positive feel for the younger generation to know that what they're going to be doing is, is a lasting involvement in, in, a, in a very, you know, historical context. Absolutely. Well, Simon, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for taking the time and best of luck in all your endeavours. Thanks, Chris, for having me on.